At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Hey, this is Gabby from District Angling. I'm here to introduce my dad, John Bellotta. He's been fly fishing since I was a kid and has gone all over the world catching big fish, but my favorite thing about fishing with my dad is just how much he really impresses on you that it's not about the fish, it's more about, you know, the day outside and enjoying the process, enjoying the practice of casting. Most days he practices in the morning doesn't have a fly on. I would say that's a majority of the time. But I think that's something that I'll always take with me is you can get really tied up in where you are in the big fish and the grand slam, but he is somebody who will always remind you that it's it's not about that. It's about so much more than the fish that you catch. So I will let my dad take it away from here, but just wanted to intro you to John Bellotta. Thanks. John, where are you right now? You're either in the Caribbean or New England. Uh, good morning, Rob. Uh, yes, I am in Madison, Connecticut. I'm back in my home. And uh, it's nice to be in the Northeast in the summertime. You're missing the storm coming here in a couple of days. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, that we just had that, that little uh, 
Henri hurricane roll through recently. And so we, we did okay. It was surprising. It was the first time though we, we've kind of had big evacuation orders along this part of the coast since I've been here. I've been up here for five years almost. So it was the first time that happened. But anyway, it was good that we didn't get a lot of damage here. I hope you right. don't get damage down there. Yeah, and we start moving things around, getting ready for all the rain. Mm-hmm. Not that we haven't had like a foot and a half of rain already locally this year. It's been crazy. We don't get a lot of rain throughout. Like it barely rained in July, but when you get a rainstorm, it's like three inches at a time now. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. No, we had that. and I wasn't here then, but we had that over, earlier over the summer where the Farmington and the Housatonic were running super high, tons of water. I think it was in June, July. And, um, and those levels have sort of just started to come down. Right. Looks like you've got some longer hair back there now. <laughs> you look like Alexander Hamilton almost. Yeah, I do. It was sort of the post-COVID avoid the barber thing. Right. Yeah. My hair doesn't do that. It just gets big. And I can't grow anything <laughs> long. It's just mass. So, all right. So how did you get into all this fishing stuff? And do you, you have well, a celebrity doppelganger also. Do you look like somebody besides Hamilton today? Uh, I have, I don't know, probably you'd have to get another source on who I look like, um, unless it's a felon or a, a currently wanted terrorist somewhere. But uh, I got an, you know, like I was just one of those little kids who was obsessed with fishing and tortured my poor mother as a child and made her take me fishing and um, all the time. And then um, we would go back to her parents owned a farm in Illinois and I'd go back there in the summers and part of the summers. And she had to take me to all these farm ponds constantly. And I would like, I mean, this is how bad it was. I would catch a bucket full of bluegill. I bring them back. And I'd throw them in like the, the watering trough there for the cows and catch them again and again and again until the poor things died. But yeah, that was kind of my upbringing. So if I ever drank milk that tasted like bluegill, that would be that's, why? That's exactly right. It was sort of that infusion of extra like vitamins of some sort. When did you first pick up a fly rod? Uh, it, in my teenage years, it's the first time I've waved a fly rod and I fished a little bit as a kid. I mean, I'm college kitty sort of thing. And then, you know, kind of got involved in work life, regular work life for a long time. And I, um, you know, I was a journalist for a number of years. I lived overseas and, and um, had the pleasure really of traveling around the world. For me, journalism was a way to see the world at somebody else's expense. And, um, so I didn't fish for like almost 20 years. Then we finally, we moved back to the States uh, in the late nineties. And that's when I really picked up a fly rod again and started fishing uh, very, you know, more and more seriously started to learn to teach and did all of those sorts of things. Is that when you landed in DC? Yeah. That's when we we came back permanently to DC. We had a bunch of little kids and, uh, you know, it was kind of like deciding where to live. And D.C. was at the time, still is, I think, in a way, a good place um, that for people to work and live that you could, you know, kind of 
have a balance between life and stuff like that. And there was a lot of outdoor stuff to do. And, and so for us, it was a really good place. And we raised five kids there. So five. Yeah. I thought you had three. No, no. Wow. What are the ages of them? Oh, they're 30 to early twenties, mid twenties. Far out. Did they tire you out a bunch? I mean, At I can the time they did. You know, handle one, but you know it was funny. I mean, that's and I I have since tortured them and made them into pretty good little fly anglers. They like to fly fish, and but you know when I was I was starting to prepare to to take my instructor exams over the course, I would bring those kids out into the yard and they had to watch my back cast. So you envision your five year old or your eight year old standing there telling you that you were throwing a really terrible back cast. That was kind of what my kids grew up doing. Was that your first introduction to the now FFI, IFF? What What are we at now? What's our what the latest acronym. iteration? It's hard to keep up, but it's FFI. Okay. Uh, no, yeah, FFI. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was that was my introduction to that. As and you know, I started early uh, early two thousands, I guess starting to prepare for my CI exam was the first one. I first exam that I took, took me several years to kind of get that together. Think about wanting to do that, how to do that, you know, acquiring equipment, starting to learn who to prepare with and, you know, figuring out and, and all of those sorts of things when you want to study for those, it's just, it's, it's like going to college, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know and then you learn something new and then you move on from there and then you find new people to work with and hopefully you find somebody to help you along the way. I found several really good people. One of them was, and you know, Phil Gay over in Moncton, who's a master instructor. He was one of the, my mentors early on and really helped me throughout the whole process of both my CI and my master's exams. So. He helped sell me my first vice when I was a junior in high school. He was hanging uh -huh. out at the Angler's Lie uh -huh. back when it was in the old apartment building. Yeah. Yeah. The He's old days guy. of fly shops in Northern Virginia. Yeah. He's a great guy. What was your first introduction to shad fishing down here? Let's see. I don't really remember the year, but I just starting to hear that, that the run of those fish was getting larger and, you know, I think I originally came out there with like my five weight and a floating line and, and, uh, you know, tried that, that didn't work really well. And then kind of figured out the, how to fish for those fish early on. Again, for me, it was probably mid early two thousands again, but what the big transition for me was when, uh, our good friend Dan Davala and I both started to fish with two handed rods on the Potomac and for shad. And it was kind of like taking a tool from somewhere else, you know, at that time, it wasn't that popular to use a two-handed rod in our area uh, and adapting it to your river system. And it was terrific because it allowed you to fish from the shore, which as you know, that river is not usually very friendly along the shoreline. And so if, with a two-handed rod, you could find places to actually make casts and catch fish. It was so it was great. So, what was your transition from going from a, and why did you initially become a casting instructor, which led you to two-handed casting and 
banging well, out huge loops. You know, I mean, it was for me, uh, it was, it was to help me become a better angler and a better, uh, caster at the time but then you know be, being a casting instructor really is just like being a coach so if you're somebody who likes to coach fill in the blank activity then you're probably somebody who would like to become a a, a trained casting instructor and so then that was the other part about it it was sort of the difference between yeah i like to do this and you know people ask you for advice and you offer advice whether it's solicited or not sometimes whether you know enough or not but then to take it to a degree that you actually understand a little bit both about casting and mechanics and but teaching and presentations and and you know how to work with small groups how to work with larger groups and things like that and so that that formalized process for me was was what helped me kind of want to become a better instructor and then you know hang out get to know people like phil who were farther along on that journey than i was who was going to help me prepare to be a better instructor what exactly is a tailing loop exactly is it well you people you know, that may not be familiar with a life of fly fishing like us who may have just discovered this podcast tailing loop is something you always hear about in casting but they may not know. Can you explain to a, a new angler what sure. that is? I mean, a tailing loop is where you get a the top leg of the loop dips below the bottom leg, basically, in essence, because of you misapplied power during the casting stroke. It's not like there's something else called an underslung loop that can travel underneath the the lower leg of a casting loop, but this is where some, a tailing loop has to do with how a caster misapplies power during the stroke, which causes the top leg of the loop to, to radically dip down below the bottom leg. Sometimes they get tangled, sometimes they get referred to as wind knots, things like that. And so that's in essence what we see when we see a tailing loop, think misapplication of power. So with that knowledge of how to properly use a rod, does that go into a lot of your rod purchasing? Knowing exactly the, the make and the, the movement and action of a rod to how you can prevent those? You know, it doesn't, it, well, I mean, preventing tailing loops just becomes uh, working on your casting skills on a variety, depending on the cast and, the rod and what you're trying to do and why you are tailing. There are different reasons why people misapply power in, in their casting stroke. And so you have to address those and then look for ways to eliminate them in terms of rods, different rod actions. You know, some of that is caster choice and, and what the rod is being used for. It doesn't really affect me on how I purchase rods. I mean, some rods you just like more than others based on how they feel and how they perform. And it really isn't a matter for me of the price point of the rod. I mean, sometimes you find very inexpensive rods that are beautifully made. And other times, you know, very expensive rods don't work well for you. A lot of my clients 
force the rod like they're using a sledgehammer like they're trying to you know slam that thing down at the carnival with the bell goes and dings where i tell them you're shouting you need to be whispering when you cast yeah. a lot of people think that fly fishing is this just aggressive pounding of a stick in the air I, well, I agree. I, I mean, we see that both in single and two-handed casting and, you know, it, sometimes it's language that people use and we use, you know, I don't know, power and, and different words mean different things to different people. And so you have to always, I think, assess that. But over the years, we've kind of taught people that it was like, you really have to hit this cast hard. And when no, you actually, you know, it's a stick and a string and you accelerate the stick and you stop it and the loop forms. And in fact, learning to smoothly pull that stick forward and rotate is much more efficient than pounding it, like hitting it hard, like it's a sledgehammer, like you said. But, you know, people mimic what they see or what they hear sometimes. and then other people, and I think this is particularly more true with men than women in terms of casting, they bring a lot of baggage to uh, the, the process about how they do something. So, you know, it's kind of like they don't necessarily take direction as easily as a lot of women do, where you'll tell a woman sometimes to do this and do that, and they'll follow that step direction very clearly a lot of the guys that you get will kind of go uh-huh 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 i know that and then they'll do sort of what they think they know that you told them when i have a couple the dude always goes off by himself me man you catch fish and the woman stands there and listens to everything and ends up catching more and has a better cast better presentation the guys yeah, always walk off to go beat the water with a fly and be caveman. Yeah. And that's really the, the, I mean, that's really the challenge on this and getting people. And again, not to pick on all guys in that sense. And I, Cause I mean, I've done the same thing too, to like sort of surrender that I know how to do this or, you know, and to listen to what they're being told and process that steps very clearly. The other thing I think is a challenge in teaching, you know, for a lot of us guides and instructors and stuff like that is this is finding people who don't process multi-step directions very well, you know, and sometimes that's an age thing. Maybe it's a physical ability thing, but you know, where you have people, some people are very good at, you know, do A, B, and C. And some people kind of get lost. You say do A, B, and C, and they're kind of doing A, B, M, K, and R. And, you know, and it's really hard for them to slow down and process those three steps that you want to do to achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve in a casting stroke or, you know, in a two-handed spay cast where you reposition in line or you know, so th those are hard things for certain people. I think they're harder as they get older in some ways. And it's harder for people who don't take lessons very often, which is kind of to one of the things that like in instruction, I think is so important for us now is that we 
we try to get people to do more than just the, I took a lesson, you know, in 1973 or uh, 1996. And we sort of transition this to being something where people study and not study, but think of it as training, like they're going to go fish somewhere. You know, you should go and prepare to fish there over the next six weeks to increase your strength, increase your coordination, work on skills that you'll need in that particular area, and then get ready for that fishery. And and I wish we'd see more of that, but that's something we as a community probably in that uh, guide, fly shop, instructor community can do better to kind of bring people in to make them want to do more of that. Um, I mean, I'm sure you see this too, this time of year, you know, you get a lot of people that are like, well, I'll get a lot of people um, right now that are about to pack up to go to British Columbia and, and which is good. And they're doing what I'm saying. It's just that sometimes, you know, they'll do it once when what they really needed is two or three times before they left on the trip. Right. With your level of skill, can you do any little tricks and things? Are there casting instructor novelties that you can do with a fly rod? Like besides knock a lit cigarette out of someone's mouth, can you, are there any like you guys, when you get together, like have little, little events where you can just oh. you know, knock things over or who can bend around a tree and. Right. Yeah. I mean, we can do, we could, you know, we do different aerial mends and things around objects all the time. What is an aerial mend? An aerial mend is basically uh, uh, when you send a wave down a fly line, like around a rock in the middle of a stream, so or a log or something. So you're casting, and the, you want the fly to land the behind the the log, and so you'll you'll put a wave in that fly line as it goes down, and so that the wave goes around the rock, and that little fly lands behind the rock or in the quiet water, or it gives you, it's something that can also give you, buy you time in the current. You put a big wave up, upstream, say, um, so that that fly sits on the other side of the bank while the faster water pushes it downstream and gives you more time sort of in the, the zone where there's fish, those fish might be sitting. All right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we do things like that. I mean, yeah, we do things like, I don't know. Most of them, I don't, I don't do too many of those. Um, I mean, I do some aerial spiral spays in my casts, um, but those are, again, most of my casts are fishing casts. I, and I, I look at everything, both with a single and two-handed rod, as these are, in essence, tactical fishing casts that you're trying to accomplish something where, you know, fly line and current is here or in the ocean, fly line is here. Fisher here, how do you change that dynamic to make that presentation now or immediately in a way that in, triggers that fish to eat? You know, Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, 
but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Who should look up a certified casting instructor in their area? And they should they be embarrassed at all to want to reach out and improve their cast? Do you think there are people that are hesitant? One, I think everybody should should look up casting instructors. There's a lot of them, both certified instructors. There's master instructors. There's master two-handed instructors spread out around the country and around the world. There's not a lot of them, but there are some. And then there are other people that aren't certified that are very good casting instructors too, uh, that are by all means just as good in some cases, not to take any away from anybody who's not a certified instructor. Um, but I, I, I don't think people should feel embarrassed going to a casting instructor anymore that they should go into a tennis or a golf coach, golf pro to improve their game. I mean, this is about improving your skills. I mean, I continue to go and see other instructors and have them watch my casts and look at things that I'm doing, you know, and when I'm fishing with really good guides, you know, I'm same thing. I ask them, how can I make that presentation better? What do you do? You know, some of this is that your normal communication, but then some of it is constantly looking for skills. You've learned this. Now, how do you take it to the next level within whatever you like to do? You know, streamer fishing. How do you become a better streamer angler? And, and I think so instructors can help you do that in a way so that when you pay a guide, you bring better skills to the table and they spend less time trying to work on your skills and more time trying to put you on those fish that you wanted to catch. Do you ever get out to the conclaves in Montana? I haven't in, a, in recent years. And then obviously covid stuff has kind of shut that down. So they're sort of hopeful, I think, in the future. I have been to them in the past um, and they're, they're fun. And I've been to a few others regionally that are very good. Um, and they're, you know, what's nice is that they bring together a mix of, like like a fly fishing show but a little bit usually they're more a little more outside and there's more outside activity and people are more people are waving rods around and trying things out and showing each other stuff so there are a lot of they're a lot of fun you learn a lot of them you know and people are generally very helpful there to everybody else um, do you have any favorite make and model rods for casting oh i have a lot um you know, uh, and uh, I mean, I'm a, you know, I like the, the Sage rods, the Sage X I've been really happy with. I like the Scott Sector rods. I like the Orbis H3 rods, you know, for salt water. That's what we use down in Belize. And uh, I like Winston rods. So both single and two-handed rods. And what else? And I like Echo fly rods. The Echo two-handed rods, the full spays are really good rods. I, I'm kind of a big believer that almost in all rod lines, well, not all of them, but a lot of rod lines from the very best to even the most inexpensive, oftentimes there's a magic stick in there, you know, in a particular line, five to 10 weights or 12 weights. One of those rods, they can all be great or good, one of them will be just magical. 
And, and your goal is to kind of find out, or my goal is often to figure out and find out through the friends and extended family, which rod that is, and then go try that rod. And it might be a nine or a seven or a five. And I, but I think a lot of those, you know, a lot of rod lines have these terrific, terrific rods, but one is just, just outstanding. Do you fish mostly graphite? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. How did you meet Dan Davala? Uh, I met Dan Davala because we were both master candidates, master casting instructor candidates at the time. And we discovered, uh, or at least I discovered that there was this other candidate who lived really close to me um, in the Washington DC area. And we became study buddies. So we would practice together and practice the exam and talk about teaching and, you know, uh, talk about things we didn't understand. And so it was a, and that's something that we really encourage people to do who are preparing at any level for those tests is to find one or two or three people and become a close knit group where you, you work on lesson plans and you, you just get together and cast specifically about and talk about the exam. When did the TPFR idea get started? the title Potomac fly rotters. Yeah. Well, I mean that, that was just getting started. I think as I was meeting Dan, he was in the process of starting this up and, uh, and then, you know, he, I mean, I, I give all the credit in the world to Dan to, to starting this uh, and all my contribution was, was Dan managed to talk me into being like the vice president or I think. So, you know, I just got roped into that and it was terrific. Courtesy Way back at our, our first meeting uh, at the library. Do you remember that? Yeah. That was I, a long time. I remember. Yes. That was a long time ago. And we are at a new location for beer tie. Starting next, what is it, a week or two? 13th, yeah. yeah. This place seems to just turn over. It's one of those building locations that never has anyone more for than like two years. Uh-huh. It's uh, some New Haven-style pizza like up near you. Oh, Colony really? House. Yeah, Colony House Pizza. Uh-huh. Well, that'll be good. Yeah. The other place went out of business, right? They all have. Oh. I had a, I mean, it was the first place that went in there. One of my students was bartending. Uh -huh. It was a waitress. Yeah, she couldn't have been a bartender if it was high school. She was a waitress. So that was a long time ago. And that closed and another place came in and that closed. Yeah, Clarendon's a little weird now. There's a lot of turnover. Uh-huh. I still miss the old Clarendon from 20 years ago. Yeah, I think they just, you know, what they do is they just jack the rent. They give them a lease. And then if they survive, they raise their rent so much that a lot of people then just leave, you know? And it's so hard to make the rent the second time around. Um, right. And they're vested on the building. And, you know, so anyway, I, so TPR was, TPFR was really important, um, both to the DC area community and, and to a lot of casting. I mean, there's been a lot of good casting instructors come out of there. 
over the years because of that club. And, and um, you know, we started this thing where we'd get together over at Fletcher's to cast and Fletcher's Boathouse and cast once a month. And it, it's, it was a really good way for people to improve their skills, but also for instructors. That's and see, that's another problem. Somebody decides they want to learn, they want to get certified as an, as an instructor, and they know a little bit about fishing, but they have no place to teach. And ultimately, at least with the FFI, that's a teaching exam. It's not a casting exam. It's not, I mean, you do have to be able to cast and you, have, you there's a performance part of it, but it there are other places to go if you want to competitively cast. It's really designed like a teaching credential. You know, can you handle classroom with X? Can you handle independent study? Can you you know, do this. I mean, that's the purpose of that. And so, you know, and you've been in classrooms in your life, you got to ultimately get experience doing that. And that's hard to do uh, in some places. And that's what TPRFR in a sense did for certain people. It gave them an opportunity to, you know, have more contact and learn to be, watch other teachers, watch me, watch others. Dan, and then begin to teach themselves. And now I think you have a really, really good cadre of people involved over there. You know, how did you go from casting at Fletcher's to casting down in Belize? Well, um, so earlier this year, I took this job down at uh, El Pescador, and on the guests, I'm one of the guest fishing director. So currently we have a several, I think we're going to kind of hopefully get down to a situation where we have two or three semi-permanent people involved in, in um, being the fishing director down there. So I'll be down there about six months a year. Um, so like I'm on three months, I just finished, I'm go back end of October and March and September, stuff like that. When you travel back and forth, do you have to just bring a day pack? Do you have like a locker down there that keeps all your tropical gear? Yeah. So, well, that's what I've now done. I've, I'm, I am pretty mobile down there now. So the nice thing is, um, one, they've got a lot of equipment that I just use when I'm down there. If I need it, if I need a rod, need to borrow a rod, I just borrow one of theirs. And being the tropics, it's kind of like short pants, flip flops, and and a work shirt uh, is the 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 gear of the day. So I have pared it down now to like my Patagonia backpack, and I'm I'm pretty much good to go. Um, but it's a great place. It's I mean you know obviously it's got a very long history. It's been around for about forty years, and uh, it's a fabulous fishery. That part of Ambergris Key, um, both for tarpon and permit and bonefish, is wonderful. I had before been hosting trips on the other side of that on the Mexican border in the Ishkalak area since the early 2000s. So I knew the fishery, or at least the northern part of that fishery. But I, but the Belize side, it, it's I, honestly I like it more. You know, I mean. Bonefish, tarpon, what else do you get done? Well, it's a, it's, there's lots of, lots of permit, lots of tarpon. So we have a big resident population of 
tarpon somewhere, you know, from kind of 10 to 90 pounds. They're there year round. Um, and then June, July, and August, September, so we get the migratory tarpon that come in, and those are our 90 plus pound fish. Bigger permit in the early spring and then the late, late fall. I mean, there's a lot of permit there all year round that are really nice, really wonderfully sized. So we haven't really had a permit discussion on this podcast. Do you want to tell us about that fish and what do you mean, like, uh, population like you how often do you see them i've never seen a wild permit i don't think yeah you see them i mean well if you're out on a boat down there you will with at least our guides they're very 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 good permit hunters um and they generally there's days when they'll go out and they'll not see permit but they're very few they see a lot of permit you get a lot of shots on permit we have multiple hookups per day on certain days, not every day, but we have days where people hook several permit in a day, which is pretty good, you know? And so, and they're, they're really nice size fish too. I mean, there's, I mean, there's these little baby permit, but then we're talking 10 to 20 pound fish. These are serious challenging fish to catch and hook and stuff like that. I mean, it's one of those people get very dedicated about trying to catch them they are very challenging to catch you can make a great presentation to that fish they'll swim right up to your crab fly and they'll and they'll look at it and break off an inch before they eat it oh my goodness and you know and sometimes it feels like you know they've got this big eye and and kind of a big forehead it makes you feel like they're super smart maybe they are i don't know if they are or not I'm sure people would say they are, but I just know that, you know, they, they are wonderful to go and try and catch lots of work. And, you know, it's a real team effort between you and your guide and circle back around to, to casting. It's one of those things that you, that's where you want to prepare your game. So when you get those opportunities, you're ready, you know, um, they like to say the guides typically will like to say down there that your first shot on that fish is your best shot. So you better be ready. You know, you may get to cast three, four five times at, at different schools of permit moving or different, even, even the same school sometimes, but the first cast that you make to those fish is what's really important. Is that part of your job description is when people come down there, you, teach them yeah. some accuracy do you guys have like a fake permit out on the lawn they can cast to we have well we're on the water we have a, a the dock and every afternoon from three to five i'm out there doing lessons with people you know any of our guests who want to spend extra time with a rod in their hand from beginners to very advanced casters you know that's their time with me i mean they can book a separate time with me if they if you know they wanted to do something before they left in the morning but to typically, you know, they're coming in from two to three in the afternoon and from three to five, uh, I'm just available for any, anybody for extra instruction. That's and that's the way to look at it. You know, it's not like it's some of them want to learn to double haul. Some of them are already learning to haul and need to improve their haul. Some of them are trying to move from 50 to 60 feet or 60 to 
75 feet and their casting distances. Uh, you know, some of them are trying to learn how to deliver their back cast on a target, all of those things. And I, what I tell them in their orientation session is, you know, the, the time that you're here, um, I am your res resource oh. to make you better. So I I try to tell them that I am their resource to, to improve their skills and make them better so that when they get out on the water the next day, they improve their chances at hooking that fish of a lifetime. You know? What do the permit the flip eat? side also is for our guides. Go ahead. Sorry. What do the permit eat down there? And do people bring their own flies? Or do you guys have a, a little shop? We have a little shop and with some of our, our favorite flies, uh, but they basically crab patterns, raghead, bower crabs, avalon crabs, uh, and mantis shrimp also work. I mean, there's others, but those are kind of what I think of uh, a lot of our go-to permit flies. And then we, we, we send people a big long list of flies that work or that we recommend and things like that. Do you guys ever get shots of permit from that casting dock? In the yeah, we do. Yeah. I've even caught little itty bitty permit on my two handed spay rods out in front of the lodge in the morning. But yeah, no, I, I, I've hooked, um, I haven't caught a permit off the dock since I've been there. I have caught tarpon off the dock and in, in the lagoon in front of us. So see, in the front of that lodge, it, it opens up to the Atlantic ocean and to the barrier reef. Basically that's open ocean water. And then behind the lodge is the lagoon system and it's, you know, all marsh lagoon and it's full of baby, it's full of big bonefish back there and baby tarpon. So, and, you know, that's kind of like two separate fisheries with what's really nice in the way the island sits when hard to imagine this, you talk, but island's 26 miles long. It's about two miles wide. You can be, you can open your door in the morning and the wind can be blowing 20 to 30 miles an hour. And you go, oh my God, this is going to be brutal. And then the guys come and pick you up and they'll drive you around back on the leeward side of the island. And the, they'll use the island to block the wind and you'll be back there in a lagoon casting a permit or, or baby tarpon or bonefish. And it will be, you know, five to 10. So it's a perfectly, it, I mean, it, it's a place that allows a lot of opportunity depending on the weather so that you don't usually get blown out. Um, As a casting instructor, how would you instruct somebody to cast into that wind? Do you prefer to cast into the wind or with the wind? Oh, I'd prefer to cast with the wind if I could, but you know, if you have to cast into the wind, I mean, it's really about uh, creating a higher line speed, tight loops, um, you know, use it, use your double haul to increase line speed. And then you really, the other thing is, you know, trajectory matters. To, now, like I teach people to cast with a high back cast and a low, very low forward cast. Um, meaning by low forward cast, what I want the fly to do is turn over right on the water. So if you're trying to cast 50 feet into a strong headwind, you don't want the fly to turn over at 50 feet at five feet high in front of you because that wind then as, as the fly and the fly line decelerate as it unrolls, 
that wind blows on it and it crushes your loop and it all falls down into a puddle. So you need to make that line move as fast as it can. And then as it turns over, you want it to turn over right on top of the target, basically, or on the water, so that the wind doesn't impact it any more than necessary. So that's how I talk about casting into the wind. You can cast sidearm, that's good. Um, you don't really cast under the wind, that doesn't really exist in the sense, uh, in terms of the wind speed. But what you do do if you cast lower to the water, i.e. sidearm, is that you give less time for that headwind to impact your loop as it unrolls. And so again, that's, that's really one of the secrets is don't, don't make that cast delivery in a trajectory that as it slows down, that big gust of wind can just blow it back at you. The flip side of that is when you have that wind on your back, you know, is to good line speed, but also improve your trajectory to the front and release in a more higher trajectory and take advantage of that wind behind you. So it, it almost kites or carries your fly even farther because you have the wind at your back. Um, so those are a couple things. What are your favorite conditions down there? You know, I like that wind somewhere between like 10 to 15 miles an hour, um, where it's a little bit broken water, uh, bright sunshine. That's really, that's really what's critical. I mean, uh, nothing's worse than a gray overcast day because you can't see into the water. So you can't, you won't see those fish unless they're really rolling, you know, but you get a bright sunny day and, and you can see whoever's in the neighborhood quite a long ways away. If you get a little bit of broken water, it helps you get a little closer to them before they get nervous. So a dead calm day on a bright sunny sky, that's really hard, especially like sneaking up on permit and tarpon and stuff like that. Cause they'll just see you, they'll see the boat, they'll see the fly line way far away. What's your sunglass preference for down there? I can, uh, I can see the edges of them. I can't see what you're actually wearing. Oh, these are just old reading glasses, but I, I'm like, I'm a Costa guy. Yeah. So what do I got here? You've got a license plate behind you. Did you catch a tiger shark up there and cut it open? <laughs> no, my truck died. I just, uh, <laughs> my, my poor old suburban finally gave up the ghost. So yeah. I, was that to fit your whole like soccer team of a family? Yes, it was. It was. And, you know, they referred, my girls refer to that car as the memory mobile. So, but yeah, it, it, it finally passed on to the, to the uh, parts department. Do your kids and family notice any Caribbean patois that you may be speaking with when you come back that you're picking up? Uh <laughs> we were talking about this yesterday but yeah no they have they they have started to tease me about how my hair has gotten longer since i've gone down there but that was just because i was too lazy to get a haircut so uh, i feel like i'm talking to vigo mortensen almost with the hair the facial hair like you probably shaved before you came on this morning with me right like you were clean shaven at 7 30 today <laughs> yeah 
I was. I've always been able to grow out a, a really good beard. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what, what's the food like down in Belize? Are you guys eating plantains, rice, fish? Yes, yes. Uh, the food at the lodge is fabulous. And, you know, it's part of my program is that I stay down there and I eat at the lodge. I'm, I'm a really basic, like, fish sandwich and ceviche guy. That's my menu pretty much daily, you know, so. And they make great ceviche down there. That'll do me no good. I'm allergic. They'd have to put some EpiPen in that for me. <laughs> I'd have to. I'd be, I'm a landlubber guy. I get the. That one burger that's been sitting in the freezer at the seafood restaurant for five years, waiting for uh, the guy like me, they'll pull that out and cook it. Uh, what about co- coconuts? Yeah, they're all over the place. You got to watch it. They don't fall on you, you know? Whoa. And they make, they make, I don't know, all sorts of stuff with them. But yeah, there are lots of coconut trees around. What are the kind of critters you going to come across out there, either on the flats or on the island? Um, well, we have crocodiles, some really good birds. It's a pretty lush tropical environment and stuff. I mean, it can be, depends on where you are, how buggy it is. It's not very buggy where we are, but you know, if you go into the parts of the jungle and get it over stagnant water and stuff like that, yeah, you want to have your bug spray and Lots of beautiful rays, great reef. I mean, the snorkeling and diving there is fabulous. So, and that's another one of the things like people, if they come down there, besides it's, I mean, I'm all in on fish, fish your little fanny off if you come down there. But a lot of people come down like to the lodge now. What I'm, one of the things I've noticed, because I host trips to other destinations throughout the year, and a lot of them are like your traditional one week six days of fishing crew shows up everybody fishes really hard and and that's great i mean i like that i do that in argentina and i do that you know in alaska and stuff um for example but uh, here we'll we will do that we also have uh, people who come in for a week fish for three days spend three days with their partner who doesn't fish hanging out by the pool or going to town or renting a golf cart and driving around the island and it's just a different vibe you know it's just a nice way to you can still kind of check your major fishing expedition thing um, but it doesn't have to be an all all in thing and I, I know other operations do that too i'm not saying this is unique on the planet but i'm just saying it's nice down at at pescador for for the guests that we have and stuff and i've liked watching that because it's been fun to watch people kind of enjoy their vacations in that mix of you know today we're going to go snorkeling and tomorrow we're going to go tarpon fishing with no extradition for americans back from belize do you ever come across some sketchy criminals that are down there escaping the law no i have not but then I'm really boring. I, you know, I'm an old man. I work from like four in the morning to 8 p.m. at night. I have time off during the day. I go fish and then I take a nap, you know, so there's not a lot of like, what else does John do? No, it's, there's not a lot John does when he's down there for 90 days. He just kind of works and fishes. What about your family? Do they come visit? 
Yeah, the nice thing is, is, well... Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. My wife comes down, stays with me part of the time that I'm down there. I mean, she can stay as long as she wants, but she's, she works. So, you know, the nice thing is, um, I mean, I live on the property, so she, whenever she wants, she comes down. And um, I haven't had any of the girls down uh, to El Pescador yet. I probably will later this year or next year. But um, I've had one of them down to fish in Belize previously. So it's a, it's a, it's a great place. That's another thing that's really nice down there and, and give you a big plug on the not just the not the lodge. I'm not trying to do that. It has been really nice the last few months, and I think post COVID, to see a lot of fathers and mothers and children on fishing trips. Now, children can be kids in their twenties, but or they could be ten year olds. I, you know, it just anecdotally seems like there's a lot of people taking you know, parents and children out on trips like that. And it's a nice thing to see, you know, so. Is there pressure for your kids to get a grand slam at all? <laughs> yeah, there probably is, but that would require me to let them get up on the casting platform when they're permit or tarpon around. So the running joke in our house is that I let them catch bonefish, but every time that there's a permit around, it's like, no, no, you need to step down and, let dad cast now. And so, yeah, I get a, a lot of grief of, about that happening. They're probably not going to get a grand slam anytime soon. If someone at the lodge does get a grand slam, what happens? Is there a, just a lot of high fives? Do you get a plaque or something? Oh yeah. They get a plaque. They get a special pin in the bar is the names of everybody that, you know, fly or spin anglers that have gotten grand slams over the last, I don't know how many years, but they, yeah, they keep track. I mean, I can tell you, and it's, it's like, this is what, so the last three weeks I was there, we had six slams one week, six the next week and nine slams and two super slams the last week I was there. So, I mean, it, this is this time of year tends to fish really well. You know, uh, even though it's summer and you can get a lot of storms, um, not a lot of storms, but the weather's a lot more unstable than at other periods of time in the, in the year. Hotter water. Can be really, yeah. Can be phenomenal, you know, and stuff like that. So what's the night sky like? It's beautiful. I mean, there's some shoreline lights, mostly the docks have lights, so it's not pitch black where I am. Uh, you know, there's like a little bit of the front of the lodge is lit up and the docks are lit up for safety issues and stuff like that. But yeah, very pretty. I mean, on a clear night sky, I mean, I was just, when I was, before I came home, it was like Gemini, Taurus and, and Virgo were all really right above the lodge in the early morning. Yeah, it was really pretty. 
does the moon affect a lot of the fishing down there? It can. I mean, they'll feed, those fish will feed heavily if there's a big bright moon. Um, and they'll also then, you know, you'll get some tidal swells, but I mean, it's, I mean, it, it's not tidal inshore. Well, it, there's inshore issues on the tides, but a lot of times we're offshore or in that sort of mile, half mile radius of the shoreline. So uh, it's just those fish are moving all the time. What about any scientific research? Do you do any tagging? Are there any schools in Belize that do research on? Yeah, you know who's very active and is Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. And they do do tagging down there. They have been doing tagging. And, um, you know, they are, but they're very active on the island. And uh, they and the guides themselves. I mean, I was just at a meeting with them before I left about they're basically in the process of organizing a, a guides flats association to do more environmental conservation protection of that region, okay. uh, you know, get the guides more involved guides who want to be involved there. I mean, the, the nice thing there is that as a culture, as a community, they've been very protective about the, their resource, but like, a lot of places everywhere, you know, it's, it's a challenge because it's, you're competing against big money interests of various types, you know, pressure on the resource is coming from other areas. Any Belize questions I haven't asked before we transition? What should people leave at home that they always bring? When they come to Belize? Yes. Uh, to live at home. Sweaters. Sweaters. Ego. Uh, pressure. You know, work-life pressure. Leave it all behind. Leave you're on vacation. Relax. Yeah, you're on vacation. You know, um, it's funny. One of the things when we do, uh, just quick story, when we do orientation, I often tell guys like, Okay, so you're going to come down tomorrow morning at six. You'll have, eat breakfast outside on the porch there. And when you get done, you're going to walk over to the table where I am, out, you know, next table outside. Uh, with And the guides are all going to be sitting over there having a cup of coffee. And we'll be shooting the breeze and stuff like that. And I say to them, look, I want you to understand that they're not going to come over and get you at the breakfast table. And it's not because they're being rude or aloof or anything like that. It's because we want you to, you're on vacation here. You, if you want to have another cup of coffee before you go fish, have another cup of coffee, you know? So, but when you're done, you know, finish and you walk over to us and then I'll introduce you to your guide for the day. And then you're off to the races. And I do that because I had a couple of people who were like, gee, those guys, you know, were very they didn't say hi when they walked up. They just walked by. And I said, no, no, it wasn't that at all. It was this other thing of us not wanting to put you under any pressure to hurry up, you know. Um, so, I mean, our whole goal down there is pretty much it's not to meet people's expectations. I mean, you know, we like to say, look, if if we just met your expectations of this place, we failed. We have to exceed your expectations. And that's across the room the board from the 
the meals to the fishing guides to the instruction to the, everything about the place the bar you know and i think they work really hard to do that you know really hard so anyway Orvis wouldn't be there if they didn't yeah probably not right all right if one was to check out your instagram they're going to see that you've been all over the place what are some of your favorite distant um, travel locations species you've chased yeah, I'm really a big fan of Southern Argentina for sea run brown trout. I mean, that's probably the place, you know, that I really like to fish every year. I take a group down there to Estancia Las Buteras, and I like their area. I like Tierra del Fuego or, or Tourist del Pane, actually, down there. I go down there, uh, too, and I like that area. Those are two of my favorites. I mean of places I like to go. Um, I mean, I've been lucky to go to the sort of some of the, not everywhere, you never get to go everywhere, but I've enjoyed fishing in India, in Christmas Island. and. Oh yeah, Misty says hi. Oh yeah. Yeah, we were, we were out like two, two, three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah, you should get him on. Working yeah. on it. We were fishing he'd too a, long. He'd be a good guest. Yeah, we had too much fun just yeah. hoppers for smallmouth for seven hours. You can't stop that to break out a microphone. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's only about an That's hour true. north now. That's true. Yeah. Did you, you did uh, Japan yeah. also? Uh, no, I did a couple there? of trips for Misty. Okay. So, you know, um, so yeah. And uh, I hope to do, do them again for him. So, you know, um, but yeah, those are really terrific, real exotic. Um, and that, I mean, that's like one of those things. It's interesting, you know, so more people from the UK would go on his, uh, his trips to India than I think people from America, just because of the kind of cultural connection to, to India, right. um, where they had family who work there and things like that. So do you have bucket list destinations? species you dream about i would still like to go and fish on i I, yeah a lot of them i mean you know there's people and friends who i have who i'm sure just like you you want to go fish with but it's finding time sometimes it's you know finding money but sometimes you can find the money it's finding the time to make it work but i'd like to fish british columbia a little bit more i'd like to fish quebec like to go to russia and probably the seychelles that would be high on my list right now. I mean, I'm really kind of a split personality between this saltwater life and my salmon steelhead two-handed life. And I, and you know, I mean, it. they're both wonderful and like, I mean, I'll do them both. And I, you know, the other thing I do, I do a lot of two-handed fishing in saltwater now. Um, I mean, I'll, I, I'll catch bonefish in front of the lodge in Belize with the two-handed rod if I'm just killing the morning sometime. But like I here in Connecticut, I'll go out or Rhode Island, I'll go out with my two-handed rods and fish for stripers all the time. I give a lot of lessons on learning to use a two-handed rod, not just similar to what happened in DC, not, you know, where we learned to catch shad with the two-handed rod. I mean, people have caught stripers with two-handed rods, but it's a tool that is useful. And particularly with certain people with 
maybe some physical limitations, learning to use a two-handed rod is better than learning to use a single-handed nine weight, you know, in terms of making a lot of casts and things like that. So, I mean, I, I use mine all the time. Are you fishing the salt ponds, salt marshes? Looks very open in your pictures. Yeah, um, here I'm just fishing Long, uh, Long Island Sound, you know, and a couple of places, I mean, up in Rhode Island, it's more uh, river salt ponds area. But right here, I mean, I'm, I'm out along the sound. And that's where, you know, as I said, I mean, I've, I've kind of sort of tailored my fishing to 12 to 13 and a half foot, seven or eight weights, gadget heads, light sink tips, and like deceivers, you know, little white deceivers and stuff like that. And it's just fabulous. I mean, you know, it's easy. You can cast, you can catch it. You know, I mean, these are all schoolies. I mean, you know, if we catch a 30 inch fish, that's a big fish. Uh, it's fun and it's good practice for when you go someplace else that maybe takes it a little bit more serious so that I get those tools out of the toolbox and use them on a regular basis. And then I'll do a lot of lessons up here for that. So, How much gear do you think you've accumulated in the last like 30 plus years? Is that, are you in your, your gear? Yeah, room? I'm in the bunker, you know, it's like, it's kind of, it's yeah it's it's over but here's it's, yeah but i it's funny i mean you know some people want like that really more power to them they like a really manicured uh organized gear operation and it cannot be messy enough for me uh, i you know i like that it's very welcoming i'm more like my dad i remember going to his law firm as a kid and looking at his desk and seeing where's the desk uh-huh and that's sort of my timetable yeah you know yeah exactly so there's stuff everywhere in here hey you know what you had a tie for uh i, I know you're you could tie but um white tarpon toads there's there is a shortage of white tarpon toads for people going to my area down there really that, yeah. I mean, you can buy tarpon toads that so you can get purple ones and black and, and chartreuse, but, and they're, they're fine too. We use them and they catch fish, but people really like to fish white tarpon toads. And, um, so if anybody comes down, bring, bring your white tarpon toads. Is that one of those COVID things? Like you can't get ribs in the South. Can't get tarpon toads at Orvis. It's been really hard. You can, yeah, we've had hard times getting flies. And we couldn't get white. Those are white bunnies. And I guess I'm talking to my tying friends. You probably know better. There's shortages of certain materials and stuff that are out there and stuff like that. Maybe we should do white tarpon toads at beer tie and they just send them all to you. Yeah, that'd be great. Do you have any good Dan Davala stories? You know, I don't. I'm terrible. I mean, I, I just think the world of Dan, he's, he is uh, a great representative at Orvis and just a terrific all around guy. He came down over the summer. He brought a group down one of their grand slam schools. And that was really nice to get uh, to spend time with him again. And we just goofed off and went way to the beach and caught a few fish and stuff like that. 
Yeah, no, I don't have any any special Dan stories. You get your family together with his, you could have like an entire baseball team. You got enough for infield and outfield. Yeah, we're pretty close. Yeah, definitely. And of course, this house that I'm in used to be Melody's aunt's. Really? Yeah. She was giving him Dan directions to get here. And she's like, I know that house number. Uh huh. Yeah, we are in Melody's aunt's old house that we bought. Yes. That's crazy. It's a small world. Yeah. yeah. So when do I head back? I head back end of October through December 23rd. And does so, the hurricane season right now, is that making you guys nervous? Yeah, always does. Just, you know, something that, but knock on wood, Belize pretty good about just in the pocket that it sort of sits. A lot of those storms, you know, move up or in and around it. So, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's obviously everybody watches it. It's vulnerable and stuff like that. We have a whole hurricane plan and we'll be on hurricane watch through October basically. But, you know, what about Halloween report comes out stuff? It's like it, it moves. So you guys going to have a Halloween party. You know, that would be a good one to see. We had a July 4th party this year that was great. I mean, you know, it really, it was funny. The the local staff did a wonderful job of of cooking this, you know, American July 4th dinner complete with, I don't know, everything, hamburgers and whatever. I don't know. It was just fun. It was a lot of fun. And then you'll be back in time for Thanksgiving? Yeah, I'll, I'll spend Thanksgiving down there and uh, come home right before Christmas. And then I take my group to Argentina to Las Terrace in January, knock on wood, and maybe go to Chile and then come back and then go back down there March 20th to June 20th. So you've got um, a pretty busy passport, a lot of stamps. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm, so I'll, I'll finish this year. I'll spend five months there and then hopefully again is my plan is I'm there six months a year and you know three on and three off you know then I kind of do a mix of teaching clinics and hosted travel especially as we come back to to normal semi-normal I don't know man it's, it's getting pretty bad here yeah I know I mean I that's, think my kid's gonna be home from school soon that we already had one student in the county die of COVID yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, I'll be surprised. You can't have, I mean, my daughter's school is small and they're all eating lunch maskless. Yeah. Well, that will last, you know, another couple of weeks. Everyone's like, why is your beard so gray? I'm like, dude, have you seen that? I've been with a kid nonstop for 15 months. She's all, I mean, she's, ne- she's, yeah. I call her a Ramora cause she's never more than 30 feet from me. <laughs> she's always near me. Yeah. She's cute. She's growing up. Gosh. I remember when she, she was born, you know? Yeah. I'd take her to beer tie and stuff and a baby Bjorn yeah. walk around. Do you like to, she like to go out and fish with you? She does. She likes better when art and I are out and then we can, have his daughter and my daughter behind the drift boat, just holding on to ropes. And then I row while art fishes. Uh-huh. Oh, we have a visitor with you now. You just had a break in. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. She likes to be dragged behind the boat uh-huh. more than the fishing. Uh-huh. But she also, I think the last time we went out, it was 94 degrees and it just wasn't right. She's got to yeah. have, maybe when it cools off a bit, she'll be a little bit more into it. Yeah. yeah. It's a good time. She hasn't tied flies in a while. Yeah. But yeah, she, she was wearing a TPFR hat at the pool yesterday. Uh-huh. Representing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. It's, it's just how, how that goes. And I found in with most of mine in their twenties is when they really kind of just like all of us, I suppose, kind of, you know, you started to want to fly fish with like, they're more in tune with fishing with me. Now they have more time. Not that they have a lot of time, but like when we get together, it's like, let's go fish together. That's very cool. Um, Let's take a trip together. And so for all those years, I remember when they were in high school, when, you know, it was soccer and other sports and life stuff. And they hardly had time to do anything like this. And I would just bug them like, let's go out in the yard. Let's go to the river. Let's go to Fletcher's. What's nice about that is to see this evolution into their young 20 year old life or twenties where, you know, now it's like, yeah, we, you know, I just had Frankie in Belize. It was great, you know, and I'm trying to take Gabby to Argentina next year and stuff like that. So, you know, um, and they like to, they like to fish and I like to torture them. So it's good. Very cool. Or what's next for you besides Belize? I take a group to Alaska at the beginning of uh, October to fish the knack-knack for the big rainbow uh, trout that drop into the uh, knack-knack river this time of year. And that's, you know, a two-handed trip. I mean, that's the poor man's steelhead trip. I mean, these are 30-plus inch rainbows that we're after. Um, I mean, you catch rainbows in the 24 to 28-inch range, um, and those are nice, but what everybody really is shopping for is a 30 plus inch fish. I mean, there's 36 inch rainbows there in that river and, and they, they smack a swung fly, a, you know, an intruder and it's just, and then you just run down the bank. It's awesome. It's very great. cool. Yeah. How very about awesome. you? Uh, I got beer tie. That's about it. Yeah, my schedule's pretty. We're trying to figure out steelhead for the fall up in New yeah. York. Now that everyone's got kids, right? In our group, it used to just be me, and now Jason's got three. Thomas has got one. Scott's got one. Andrew just has a dog. But yeah, we'll fig- hopefully figure it out. We all couldn't get up last year. Have you looked at Ohio instead? Yeah, but I still don't like the tailwater. Uh-huh. I love fishing the tailwater because of the bugs. Mm-hmm. I feel like we catch more on, you know, just general trout fly nymphs on the Salmon River just uh-huh. because of the nature of the flow and the constant flow. Do you fish Douglaston or where do you do you we fish above? Mostly the, the fly stretch. But I think this year I'll take out the, you know, my little inflatable boat and float down, fish different spots. Mm-hmm. If there's a group of us, you know, I've got three inflatable water masters. Or two water masters and a Dave Scadden. So, yeah, we could float and fish all those spots in between. Mm-hmm. And then my buddy, Dirty Bill, lives in Altmar. So, if he's not working, he'll float with us. Yeah. And he knows all the spots. But yeah, I wish there was more fly only stretches. 
Yeah. You know, the, the gear guys have got the whole river. I know it's a different type of water. It's like spawning water up in the fly stretches there, but really wish there was just a stretch that was fly only. It'd be a lot cleaner. Yeah. Let's, let's tackle in the trees and power lines. Right. Shit on the side of the bank. Yeah. 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 Um, you doing any other conservation related projects work? Not really just helping out four mile run foundation. There's some cleanups coming. They're going to dredge four mile run. So I'm pretty excited to see how that fishery is going to change over winter. If it's like three or four feet deeper and hopefully more carp start coming up in there. Mm-hmm. And then I'm guessing there's a really crappy boat ramp there that if they're going to be dredging, they might fix that up to use it to put whatever in. So might be able to get my drift boat in there because now I've got to put in a gravelly and then go all the way around the airport with a nine horsepower if we want to float. So that's a schlep. Yeah. Yeah. That's not easy. No, it's a long ride. My buddy had a flats boat up here. That was a two minute ride, but he took that to Seattle. Yeah. Hopefully some steelhead fishing this winter, getting ready for temps to drop off and a little bit bigger stripers to come through. Just, you know, 10 to 12 inches right now. They were everywhere yesterday. The amount of, I mean, you could just see that it was cloudy and overcast and all you could see were schoolie stripers flashing in the water. I think we weren't catching as many because there was just so much baby shad. There was Uh so much bait in the water that ours just got lost. Yeah, yeah. The water was just glittery with baby shad. Wow. Is it gravelly or? or? Downriver. Uh-huh. Yeah, the water was flowing so hard I couldn't hold my anchor. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because we've been getting some crazy rain. Every week we get two to three flash flood warnings and this yeah. in August. Yeah, I know. I think this is like the norm, you know? Um, yeah. And you're going to get rain out of this storm that's coming up. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm going to put all my flower potted plants probably in the carport. Cause we already had one tomato plant in a pot drown and just couldn't drain fast mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, yeah. We got crazy squash growing though. You need to really? squash if you're passing through. It's cr- all volunteers from compost. Uh-huh. I could probably go get three or four butternut squash in a week right now. Wow. Honey nut squash and pumpkins and gourds just all grew out of what we threw out in the yard last year. Mm-hmm. We have Cinderella pumpkins. We can make soup out of those. Oh, it's those the are good. New York Times brown butter and Cinderella pumpkin soup. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess all these squash, we're just getting ready for soup season. Well, if you get up this way, I mean, you know, you're more than welcome to come and stay with me. Absolutely. Fish, or if you're on a drive, like, I don't know, if you're on a wander about kind of thing, you know, want to stop in. Usually I got a bed around here. You'd spoil uh, me with the bed, man. I usually just sleep in the car. <laughs> I know. That's what I mean. So just let me know and then we'll go fish. We'll either that or come up and we'll go fart around Rhode Island for a few days and stuff like that. I, like I need that. to do more exploring up there. and and. You know, just, I mean, the, the best time here is the spring and the late fall and stuff like that. So in terms of stripers and stuff, and I've got a couple of nice places, you know, down on the Housatonic that I fish and then up in Rhode Island that I fish besides just what's outside of my house. So say within an hour in each direction, there's some pretty good wade fishing to do. Very cool. That's a lot of fun and stuff like that. So yeah, anytime you want to come up and then I may see you just cause I, I'm supposed to be down in DC in the next week or two. 
just for um, to catch up with Gabs. And then I got to go see a couple of the, the girls who have just decided to have babies and make me a grandfather. So right on. Worse. Mazel tov. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm free yeah, during but, the day while my kid's at school so we can fish. I got okay. 8.30 to two to 3 o'clock pretty much. Uh-huh. And her school, I mean, I can hear the bell. It's that close. Uh-huh. It's not like I have to you know drive far to pick her up afterwards. Yeah. All right. So let's say somebody wants to work on their casting, go catch a permit, go to Alaska or South America with you. How can they find you? Oh, well, they can find me on Instagram, Georgetown Fly Fishing. They can send me an email at John Balata, J Balata at GeorgetownFlyFishing.com. They can find me on Instagram, I guess. Yeah. And on Facebook. So I'm around and, and then they can find me in the fly fishers international list of, you know, certified instructors. And whether you use me or you look up wherever you are in the country and find somebody else, that's really what I would encourage you to do sometimes. Just cause I think that there's a lot of good people out there. And I just wish we would do just a plug, not but this idea that I think, you know, there's a lot we can learn from each other. So when I was preparing for my exams and I was, you know, I would travel around the country just on vacations or other trips. And I would go to that directory and I would look up who was here. And a lot of people, I would just call them up blind and I'd say, Hey, it's John. I'm from here. You know, I'm studying for this. Um, Would you have some time? You know, I'll, I'll pay you if you want. And, you know, I'd go and meet people for an hour or two and cast in a park or on a pond or in the ocean or whatever. It was fabulous. And I've met some of the best people I've gotten to know in fly fishing that way. It also, I mean, not only to make me a better angler, but it, it helped me build the network of people around the country. And in fact, a lot of places around the world that if I need to know something about a place that, you know, the many places I haven't been, yeah, I do what we all do. I'll Google and I'll look at the articles that are out there on these places. But then I go to my list of guides and instructors and start sending emails. And I mean, you know, to people that, it, that are colleagues or I've met or some friends. Uh, and that's, I found a tremendous resource to improve my fishing uh, over the years. And it's something that I would pass on to people that I think, you know, that whole process of studying and whether you take a certification or not, it's immaterial, but of continuing to improve your skills, that process has opened the door to a network of people that I never would have had. And I'm very happy to have. That's great. All right. Well, John, thanks for telling your story today. Oh, good. Let me know uh, when you guys go back and listen to it, if any of it makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure right. some TFR and folks. If it and if it doesn't, don't worry about using it. It's it's You don't have to. All right, uh, dude. All right. Good to talk Thanks to you. Thanks so much, and have fun with your week. Let's go start right. on Mondays. Cheers. Sounds good. I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.